Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come uh, to you this morning on the other side of a really busy week for most of us, uh, bouncing back and forth between various families and uh, trying to navigate the hustle and bustle of Christmas. Uh, And my prayer, Lord, is that we have spent some time over the last week uh, reflecting on you, worshiping you, and the great gift that you have given us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. Um, We pray, Lord, that you be with us during this time, that you would continue to speak to us and teach us what it means to be your disciples and what it means to be more faithfully formed in your image and your likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today is uh, a fun day at Spry Church because we are starting a new series, a new preaching series called You Are Not Alone. You can see the graphic there on the screen. Uh, And I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but this will be the last series of the decade and will also be the first series of a new decade. Um, as we flip from 2019 into 2020 this coming week. Uh, And so a new decade is upon us, which means that most of us will be doing uh, this for the next three months um, as we write the new date. That's definitely me. Um, Maybe six months, sometimes eight months. Um, But with that out on the horizon, that shift coming, we figured um, we'd pay a little attention to some of the things that we think about, some of the things that uh, we struggle with, the things that, that dog us year after year after year uh, that we would like to overcome. You know, we're thinking about what are the things in our lives that generate fear or generate anxiety within us uh, that we would like to conquer with God's help. And so what we did was we actually took time to ask that question. I don't know how many of you remember that. Uh, If you haven't been here in a while or maybe you missed those couple of weeks, you might have missed the survey that was in your bulletin during, I think, sometime in the month of November. And we asked you, what is it that gives you anxiety or what is it that generates fear within you that you'd rather not have as a part of your life? And so we as a staff looked through uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those responses, and we looked at kind of what were the big themes, like what are the big umbrellas that we could put uh, a lot of those answers under, and we boiled them down to these four topics. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about comparison and performance, so comparing ourselves to other people and finding our worth and value in how we perform. Uh, The week after that, on the 12th, we'll be talking about financial stress, That was one of the other big themes, was stress over finances. Uh, The next week, we'll be talking about stress uh, and anxiety over aging and death. And then this week, what we're going to be talking about is family drama. One of the clear themes that emerged as we were going through these uh, responses was just that so many of us face challenges around family situations that are in some way changing. The other thing that was clear is that what that change is, uh, is not consistent for all of us, right? And so some of us um, are thinking about or deal with a broken relationship with a parent. For others of us, it's divorce, uh, a custody battle that has been ugly, sibling rivalries that have existed for a really long time, uh, parents who have felt betrayed by their own children in some form or another, uh, long-held conflicts, long-held grudges, or just straight-up drama. Right, where, where somebody did something and it just boiled all out of control and now you're fighting and you don't really even remember why it started, but you don't know how to stop it, right? But that theme of, of family dynamics came up over and over 
and over again. And I don't really know what the deal is with this church, but y'all got some messed up families. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm kidding um, when I say that, but I'm also not kidding, and here's why. Um, because we all have messed up families, every single one of us. Your family, my family, we are all messed up in some way or another because there is sin in our lives and sin in the world, and that means that no family is perfect, right? Sin means us as individuals are not perfect, and a relationship, right, a partnership, is two sinful people coming together, which you're just kind of compounding the possibilities for brokenness there, and then a family is just a group of relationships, right? And so you just bring more and more relationships into the fold, which means there's more and more potential for brokenness and drama and difficulty. And so there is no family that is perfect. And this is where we stand in a little bit of a tension uh, as Christians. Because as you read the New Testament, uh, the New Testament has a fair amount to say about families. What a family should look like, how it should be structured, um, how different family members should function, how people should get along. And so what we as the church try to do is we try to produce healthy families. Families that kind of fall under the umbrella of these biblical principles and these biblical ideas. Um, every year, right, we offer a marriage course that's based in biblical principles to build strong marriages. Every year we, we offer a parenting course as a church to try to build strong families and help parents raise their kids. But sometimes I think as the church, as we've tried to promote healthy families, I think we've done a disservice uh, to the world around us, maybe not us as an individual church, but kind of the big C overall church, because what we've done is we've communicated a message in that that says that church is a place where only healthy families can come. Right, we want to build healthy families, and so we talk about healthy families, and we hold healthy families up as the standard, but in doing so, sometimes we communicate that unless you're a perfect family or a healthy family, you can't be here. And so if your family doesn't look ideal, or your relationships have some warts, or maybe you've been divorced, or maybe your kids aren't the best behaved, or there's just some kind of brokenness inside of your family situation, sometimes the church has communicated the idea, we don't want you here. And that's a terrible failure on our part if we've done that. Because the truth is, is that God has done some of his best work inside of busted up families. Right, if you look at the scripture, if you look at the Bible, what you see is not examples of great, perfect, strong families for you to be like. If that's your expectation going into scripture, you're going to be really disappointed. I mean, just take it in kind of in chronological order of the families we meet for just a second, right? Adam and Eve, the very first couple, the very first married couple. Set aside the fact that they brought sin into the world, which was kind of a mistake, but their two sons— right? Cain, Abel. Cain murders Abel. Their son murdered their other son. Then you move on to somebody like Abraham. Abraham ties up his son Isaac and almost sacrifices him, almost kills him. Kind of strange. Isaac, who will come back later to later, uh, Isaac and, uh, yeah, sorry, Isaac had sons, right, who hated one another. Later you get Joseph. Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and we're not even out of Genesis yet, right? And we're talking about these families. Ruth lived with Naomi because all of Naomi's sons had died. Her husband had died. Eli was killed because his sons were disobedient. David had a son that 
rebelled against him and tried to kill him and overthrow him. I mean, these are dysfunctional families, and these are the heroes of our faith. And so their, their dysfunction didn't disqualify them from God doing something in their lives. It didn't disqualify them from God working through them, and so God can work through our broken families as well. But this is where that tension comes in a little bit that I was talking about. Because our family is one of the most important things in structuring how we see the world, right? Through our parents, through those around us, through our families, we learn how to build relationships. We learn how to treat people. We learn whether to be trusting or whether to be suspicious of others. We learn if we should be risky or risk-averse in our relationships. We learn all kinds of different patterns from our families. And so in other words, what our family does is it gives us a frame through which we see the rest of the world. And it determines what we think about others and what we think about the world and what we think about God. And part of the issue is that we don't really get to choose this frame, do we? By the time we're being raised and by the time we're old enough to realize that this frame has pretty well already been established for us. And so we don't get to pick our family and we don't get to pick that framework and so those of us who were raised in healthier environments were probably given a healthier frame with which to look through the world. And those of us who grew up in more toxic kind of environments or environments with a lot of pain or struggle or drama or mistrust, chances are you see the world through that lens too. And so what happens is when you come upon things later in life and you've get, got struggles and you've got complications and you've got difficulties, what you do is you pick up that old frame. Right? And you look at the world through that old frame, and it determines how you respond. <clears throat> the Old Testament talks about generational curses. How many of you have ever heard of a generational curse in the Old Testament? It's not something we talk about very often, but in a generational curse, essentially what you see is uh, one family that continues to fall to the same sin or the same vice over and over and over again, generation after generation after generation. And in my opinion, generational curses, they hang on this very thing. That one broken generation teaches that broken framework to the next, and to the next, and to the next, and to the next. And so what happens is it creates the same result over and over and over again. And so the question for us is, what if God was interested in destroying those old unhealthy frameworks and giving us a new framework through which we can see the world? And so that's what we're going to talk about with the rest of our time this morning. Now the quintessential... Um, wow, these people have serious issues uh, story in the Bible is, uh, for families, is the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau is a really well-known story for those of us that grew up in church, but if you're new to church or you just have never heard the story before, um, we're going to talk about it here. Uh, in Genesis 28, we find this man named Jacob on the run. Uh, he's living out in the wilderness, and he's actually laying on a rock, using a rock for a pillow. And sometimes I think about, you know, what did the, why did the biblical authors give us certain details and not others, right? So you think about um, the fact that we don't know what Jacob was wearing, we don't know what the weather was like, we don't really know much at all, but we do know the detail that he had his head on a rock, using it as a pillow. And so I think that the writer of Genesis is trying to tell us, hey, these are pretty hard times <laughs> for Jacob, right? If you're out in the wilderness and a, a rock for a pillow brings you comfort, like, chances are that you've had a pretty tough day. 
And so Jacob has been put in this position because there's all kinds of family drama that just went down. And Jacob had a really long-standing uh, rivalry with his brother Esau. And even from the very beginning, um, this was the case. So Rebecca is their mother, and she knew, even from the time that they were in the womb, they were twins, so they were in the womb together, that they were going to have issues. They would fight, and they would kick, and they would wrestle, and they just generally made life miserable <laughs> for Rebecca. Um, in Genesis 25, 22, she prays to God, and she basically just, I think she's just venting, and she says to God, um, she says, if it has to be this way, in other words, if these babies are going to fight in me like this, if it has to be this way, why do I live? So those of you that uh, have our mothers and have carried children, maybe you could relate at some point or another. Uh, when the baby, like, elbows you in the ribs or steps on your bladder again or something like that, and you go, just kill me now. <laughs> That's basically what she's saying there to God. And what I think, I think the truth is, is, I don't think she was waiting for a response. I don't think she expected God to respond to her, but he actually does. And he gives her this prophecy in uh, Genesis chapter 25. And he says, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so what God basically says to Rebecca is, these two aren't going to get along. They're going to fight their entire lives just like they're fighting now. And that last part is interesting because in the society where Rebecca and her husband lived, the older brother was always favored. So the older brother was the one who was the most important. He was the one who inherited the birthright, um, which was the land or the property or the wealth of the father. And so the idea that the older brother would serve the younger brother was a pretty foreign idea. And so Rebecca probably would have scratched her head when she heard that. But the babies are born, and I think this is interesting. When Esau and Jacob come out of the womb, um, Esau comes out first. He is the older brother then. Um, and when he comes out, Jacob is latched on to Esau's heel. He's holding on for dear life. And when your kids have that kind of rivalry that starts that early, that says, I'm not going to let him get that upper hand on me even that early in life, you know you're in for a lot of trouble. And so what happens is they grow up to be very different men. Um, Esau was a hunter. He was a big hairy dude, real outdoorsman kind of type. Think Duck Dynasty. That's what Esau was like. And Jacob was a little bit softer. Um, he enjoyed being inside. He wasn't very hairy. Um, these are all things that the Bible says, by the way. Um, and he liked cooking. So two really different kind of personalities. But through all of these things, through this prophecy, um, through their, their parents, the mother, Rebecca, uh, favored Jacob, the father favored Esau, through all of these different things, they developed a frame through which they saw their story and through which they saw God. And eventually what happened is Jacob steals two really important things from Esau. Um, he tricks his dying father into giving him uh, the blessing, and he steals the birthright from Esau as well. And so when we catch up with Jacob here in Genesis 28, he's on the run out in the wilderness because Esau's trying to kill him. He tried to steal, or he did steal, these two really important things, two things that belong to the firstborn, and Jacob has stolen them from Esau, and so Esau is pretty upset. So you look at it, and you see quite a bit of family drama there, right? Parents with favoritism, father who's dying, Jacob and Esau with this long-standing rivalry. 
And so he's, Jacob is in the middle of nowhere, and you can probably imagine how he's feeling, probably depressed, angry, discouraged, scared. You know, he's at the lowest point he has ever been because all these years of conflicts finally simmered and bubbled over the surface. Just this week, um, I was texting with somebody from our church, and I asked him, I said, hey, how's your Christmas? How's your family doing? And he sent me this picture. Um, that was his only response, was a dumpster fire. <laughs> so you get a bit of a sense for how well he's doing. <clears throat> and that's probably how Jacob felt at this point, right? That he's just in the middle of this dumpster fire. And so he's on the run, he's in the middle of nowhere, he's had the worst couple of days of his life, and he lays his head down on a rock for just a little bit of rest and to escape the family drama for a while. And what happens is, he has a dream. It goes like this. Genesis 28, 11. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and to the south. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until what I have done I have promised you. So Jacob dreams of this ladder, right? Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven. Maybe if you are a Led Zeppelin fan. Um, <laughs> you do the, the stairway to heaven. This is where the song comes from. And so he sees this vision. And God is there. And not only God is God there, but he says to him, he says, I am the God of your fathers, and I am your God, and in fact, this land on which you are sleeping, you're going to own this one day, and your descendants are going to own this one day. And so Jacob wakes up, and he says these words. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I want us to think about that sentiment for a second. Because of all the places that Jacob expected God to be, he did not expect him to be in that place. Right? Jacob is at his lowest point. His family has just imploded. And he probably thinks that God is out there dealing with people who have their stuff together, who are in more stable families, and who don't have a brother that wants to murder them. And the idea that God would be in this place, in Jacob's need, is outside of his frame of reference. It's outside of the frame that he has about God. The framework that he had developed over and over again in his life that said God is here and God is not there. You see, in Jacob's day, what people believed about God and the gods is that the gods lived in altars. And the gods lived in tabernacles. And the gods lived in temples. And the gods lived in idols. God didn't just freely roam around to these various places and show up to people at random. His framework said, God is like this and not like that. And so he doesn't expect God to show up out here in the wilderness. But Jacob finds himself not only here in God's presence, but actually in the middle of a portal, right, where angels are ascending and descending and God is standing there. And so really the only thing he can think of to say is, I had no idea. And so God t gives him a totally new frame with which to see the world that says God is in this place too. 
And so my question is, where do you think God is when you feel like Jacob? What does the frame that you were raised with tell you about where God is in those lowest moments? Because what the Bible tells us is that it's these moments, these hopeless, helpless, frustrated moments, when we think God is probably far away, that God actually arrives to meet us in that pain. In Genesis chapter 16, there's a woman named Hagar. Um, Hagar comes from a pretty messed up family situation herself. Uh, Hagar is a slave, and she is actually the slave of Jacob's grandparents, so Abraham and Sarah. And God has promised Sarah that she's going to have kids, which obviously she does, because they have descendants. But she's past childbearing age, and she doesn't trust God's promise, and so she decides to take matters into her own hands. And so what she comes up with is this kind of ancient surrogacy idea, where, he says, where she says, I'm going to have Abraham, my husband, sleep with Hagar, my slave, and they're going to have a baby, and then I'll raise that child as my own, and that will be my kid. And so the scripture says this, it says, when Hagar knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise Sarah, as you can imagine that she would, right? Because she forced her to lay with her husband. And Sarah says to Abraham, she said, you're responsible for all the wrong that I'm suffering. So Sarah blames Abraham, which doesn't seem fair, but hey. She said, I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham is like, I'm not dealing with this. He says, the slave is in your hands. Go do with her whatever you think is best. And so Sarah actually starts to abuse Hagar. And so Hagar runs away. And Hagar runs into the wilderness much like Jacob does. And while Hagar is out there in the wilderness in this horrible situation, right, pregnant with a baby that she never wanted, carrying it for a, man, for a woman that hates her, who abuses her, this is where God meets her. This is where God makes promises to her, and God says he's going to bless her and bless her child. See, this is what God does. This is kind of who he is. He meets these people. He meets us in these lowest places and gives us a new framework so that we can see him more clearly. I think a lot of us have a tendency to think like Jacob did. We were raised with a framework that says God is in certain places and not in others, right? God is in church, which is why maybe a lot of you or a lot of people come on Christmas Eve. Right, because God is in church, and that's where you go to find God. And he's definitely here, and God is found in church in a really specific and special and unique way. But God is also found outside of the church walls, pursuing those, as he does here with Jacob, those who are way out in the wilderness. Aggressively pursuing people that are out at the margins. And when he finds people there, he sustains them and sits with them and makes promises to them. And I don't know what Christmas was like for you. Maybe it was the half-happiest time of the year. But I'd also know for some people in some family situations, it's a pretty rough time. And maybe you found yourself over the last couple weeks in a really similar place to Jacob where you just are in pain over what's going on with your family. And the truth is, is that you are not alone in that. Because God is doing with you exactly what he is doing with Jacob, showing you you are not alone in the wilderness. I am right here with you. My promises for you remain, and those promises will prevail through the pain and through the darkness and through this wilderness. God is present with us in those moments. Now, I said at the beginning that there's a tension here, 
right? This tension between God sitting with us and, guide, and then also guiding us through the drama. And then God calling us to live differently once we see the framework that we have is wrong. And that's where things get a little bit more challenging. Um, God is not just, just there to pat you on the back and tell you it's okay. Um, God is not just there to give you the strength to come through it. God wants to, to do something with that. God is not a heavenly stress ball. Um, and God is not a heavenly Xanax for you to take <laughs> to make things a little bit easier. God meets you there for a purpose, to take you somewhere. What God did for Jacob was that he disrupted that framework and then took him on a journey that eventually brings him back around to Esau. If you know the end of the story, those two make up. It takes years and years and years and years, but eventually they meet back together and they reconcile in this really beautiful moment. And God seeks to do the same for us, where he wants to rework this frame. He meets us out in the wilderness, right? And he meets us in the wilderness, just like Jacob, where the frames that we've been looking through for all of our lives have been defined, a lot of us, by these words. Words like anxiety, and pain, and regret, and drama, and fear, and anxiety. This is how our families, this is how sometimes our parents trained us to see the world. And so when we look at different situations in life, we see it through this frame. But what God does with Jacob and what God seeks to do with us is renew that frame. To break the old one and give us a new one that's defined by different kinds of words. Words that come from, uh, if you can find this, uh, Brandon. I think it's the very last slide. Words that come from Philippians, where the Apostle Paul says, think about what is true and what is noble and what is right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Words that come from the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are the words of the Christian life. These are the words of the frame that God wants to create in your eyesight. And they're the words that can undo generations of pain, that can break that cycle that maybe you found you and your family in for so long. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can not only change the direction of your life, but can potentially change the direction of the lives of generations to come as God creates a healthier and holier framework for how you see the world. And so as we move into a new year, as we move into a new decade, we proclaim, like Jacob, that God is in this place. That God is in every place of darkness and regret and despair and pain. And he's also there offering you a new way to see the world. To see it through his eyes. Heavenly Father, um, on Christmas Eve, there were just about 750 people that came through the doors of this church. 750 different stories, 750 different frames through which people see the world, and yet they all came to see you, to worship your son Jesus who was born almost 2,000 years ago. And so, Lord, what we pray for each one of those 750 people and everybody who's here this morning, 
is that you would teach us. Give us eyes to see. Teach us to see the world as you do. Take those old frames that continue to produce sin and strife and pain and anguish in our lives. Break them over your knee and give us a new one that is defined by the life of your son Jesus Christ and is defined by the power of your Holy Spirit. Break those patterns, break those temptations, break that pain, Lord, that has been our frame of reference for so long. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity as we enter into a new year and into a new decade to start anew each and every day with you. And so, Lord, we pray as your disciples, we pray this prayer that your son Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, 